Welcome to the Akasi Podcast and at this exciting day we're kicking off our season three with the exciting episode is Conflict Inevitable. I am going to be joined today by two very exciting guests. I'm joined by Zoe who some of you might remember from our first season's first episode which happened almost two years ago now so he's got a different perspective and he's probably grown as a good strong pillar of his community and we've also got Milton all the way from ALA who's going to be talking to us about his experiences with conflict and how he's grown from them. So just to kick off the discussion, Milton, would you like to give us a little brief introduction about yourself? Thank you, Julian. Uh, My name is Mbifans Milton. I am from Cameroon. I am a MasterCard ALA scholar at AUI in Morocco. I am a major in uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, and I'm interested in how uh, computers are used to solve uh, community challenges uh, in a way, I've had some uh, personal experience with conflict, and I'm looking forward to sharing my uh, perspective on this podcast. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And Zoe, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in this topic in particular? Right. So I'm Zoe Mabude Steves. As Julian mentioned, I was on the first episode of the first season of the podcast as well. So it's a pleasure to be back here. I'm currently a third year student studying international relations and quantitative methods at the University of Edinburgh. Um, And I have some personal experience with conflict as well growing up and just being around. And personally, I found that art is a way for me to express my relationship with conflict. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. I love that art is a really good way to express it. Um, So just to kick off, I'm just going to ask the generic question to both of you. And that is, how has conflict within Africa or abroad affected you? Um, And this is particularly relevant as of recording this. There's a war going on in Ukraine. The Sahel region of Africa has got a lot of problems. There's a civil war in Ethiopia. What does it mean to you to see all these different things happening? I'm sure I've left out a huge number of them. And how has that been towards your mental health and some of the initiatives you strive to do? So just to kick off, Milton, would you like to just give us your thoughts, opinions, or general feelings on that. All right. Um, Well, I think that um, with all these conflicts uh, going on, it's easy for us to look at them as just statistics, unless you've actually been in an area where conflict is a reality, something you've actually experienced. And the whole aspect of a mental health problem that comes with conflict from other places uh, is a thing that you might only get a glimpse of. But if you've had to deal with it, particularly yourself, then it becomes something really uh, realistic to you and something that you find to be a problem. Now, the war that is going on in Ukraine, there is very little I could say about it. Um, There's also very little I could say about the war that is going on in Ethiopia. But there is a civil crisis in my country, and I could speak from the perspective of somebody who has been affected significantly by it. Now, there is this passive resignation that comes in when you feel like there's very little you can do. You feel very helpless. Um, It comes into when you're outside of um, the country so that it feels that you're 
you're safe in a place where life goes on normally and your entire family and culture back home is suffering from something that you can do very little to alleviate. Now, this passive resignation is even more dangerous than having to deal with the fears on the ground because then your whole system is put into survival mode. But right here, you feel like you are privileged and you have no way of uh, justifying that privilege. You have no way of acting from a place of responsibility because you're literally just powerless. And you get to be afraid every single day of getting that one miserable phone call that says that your loved ones back home are injured, they're hurt or they're dead. And you live in constant fear, even though you are within an area that seems to be safe uh, for the moment. In terms of mental health, I think that um, this very issue is problematic because it uh, it's a recurring thing. It does not come at once and stops. You have to deal with it every single day because you have no idea what the reality on the ground is. I, I, in terms of how it has impacted me personally, I would say that um, it has created a kind of situation where I am staring at at someone who looks like a monster and who tries to harm me or my family. And the only way to react is to probably be exactly like them, basically. So you're trying to solve a problem by being ex exactly like the person who caused it in the first place. It's creating a lot of resentment. It's creating a lot of anger. And it's creating a lot of dissent, even among family members. And that is the worst kind of thing that could happen to people when you can destabilize communities, even down to the very root of the community itself, the family. Yeah, that, those are some very powerful thoughts. And it always just remi reminds me of this quote. I always forget who said it, but it's just like one death is a tragedy. Millions of deaths are just a statistic. And I guess that's the world we kind of live in at the moment, where there's a lot of wars, a lot of conflicts going on. They've been on the rise since 2017. And we just see so many people suffering that it just all becomes a random arbitrary number to us. And it doesn't really impact us in any deep or meaningful way anymore. But then if you are someone on the ground, you're feeling this, you're facing this every day. And I guess you can grow to have this resentment or bitterness that kind of forms from that. So I really like that. Those, those were some really good and key points. I'm just going to pass this over to Zoe and just hear what he thinks about all of this. And what are some of the practical steps, solutions you can have to overcome some of these feelings? You know, I think um, as an international relations and politics student, one disadvantage of studying that degree down the line is the onset of some cynicism, essentially, because as Milton mentioned, you know, you get so exposed to stories of war and violence so much that you become desensitized to it. And it just becomes something else, you know. There's a concept of like abstraction in politics where, for instance, deaths and destruction of life is referred to as, um, you know, collateral damage in wars. And even terminologies like that essentially trivialize human life. And you reach a point where this not only affects your beliefs, obviously, growing up in Africa, which most countries that I know of have a sort of communal lifestyle where you value your community, you see your community as one, and you get used to this system that trivializes life so much, it can obviously cause a dissonance that, you know, can definitely affect mental health. And trust me, I definitely know the experience of what it's like. You know, and Milton, you mentioned something else that I also quite liked. You mentioned the passive resignation that we feel as Africans in the diaspora. And I think this is a really, really powerful point to make because obviously many of us, by leaving the country to study, 
we've sort of switched positions. And now in a way, we are disconnected from the problems at home. At least we're not directly impacted by them anymore. And the problem that comes with that is sometimes you might forget your own struggles. You might forget your own stories and forget your own history and your own culture to the point where you don't know who you are anymore. Because no matter how much you get assimilated into the new Western culture and ideals, it's never really your home. It's not your original place. You know, and that sort of puts you in a very weird situation because it's almost an identity crisis of some sorts, you know, and I think a lot of students go through this. And when you look at the issue of conflict, narrative and perspective as well plays a role. You know, it's different for us Africans who are thinking about, say, the Russian invasion of Ukraine from the safety of our, you know, university accommodations and our scholarship positions. But the Africans studying in Ukraine and Russia have a whole different perspective and narrative to tell. For example, there were videos a few weeks ago about you know, the African students in Ukraine and how, despite the fact that there was a war that attacked and affected life equally, racist um, stories and connotations were still seen. And you could still see the racist undertones in how situations were handled. And it just shows that you know, regardless of your situation, it's always important to not completely be disconnected from who you are and where you're from and have that knowledge and use it to try to overcome feelings of, you know, mental health issues, because you have to realize that in the end, you just have to find a way to structure and reconnect with who you are. And this can be hard. I know for like a lot of students abroad. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was pretty well said. And I guess this might take us a little bit of a tangent, but while you were speaking, I guess I was just kind of, taking it back to the story of South Africa and how they were under apartheid. Um, it's always so amazing that someone like Nelson Mandela, who had kind of lived in this divided system, um, he'd gone to jail for 22 years and he couldn't see properly because he was in this prison where there was like limestone and he was just subjected to the sun rays hitting that and that affected his vision. And he had to deal with hypothermia and things like that. And how when he came out and a lot of people around South Africa would have called for him to more or less, you know, just get revenge and instigate conflict and do things like that. But he was able to rise above that and say, let's stop and let's try and find like a common resolution to this problem. And how we kind of funneled that through the South African rugby team, which was just a predominantly white team, and how he was able to turn that into a team for the people and how South Africa today is a model of a country that could have engaged in conflict, but it didn't. And it's been able to kind of take all these things and through amnesty, just talk about it and put itself in a situation where it hasn't. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't have problems or issues, but I guess the point I'm trying to get from this is how can a system so divided like that ever be able to reconcile? Like whether that's something going on in Mali with its current um, wartime struggles or it's in Ethiopia or it's in Ukraine itself, how could they ever reconcile with Russia? And I guess I kind of want a little bit of insight from the both of you on how hard it is to reconcile and how hard it is to forgive because there's always this bitterness that just stems from like the divisions we create as people. All right. Well, first of all, the horror of watching somebody kill the person that is close to you is something you cannot just dismiss. And I think that um, 
it's not on just the physical layer of our interaction with human beings that we're incapable of reconciling conflict as soon as we might like to, so that we can then uh, come together again. But I think that there's one thing we could remember. Do we have a shared history? Do we have a shared culture? I think if we can dig deeper into the roots of our origins as a nation or as a community, that we might be able to find some middle ground upon which we can build um, resolutions to our conflict. But if we have the history of always being at war with each other, it would be even more difficult to be able to reconcile any differences. Um, right now, for example, they, we have Shiite and Sunni Muslims, and they have a shared history of uh, um, the origin of their religion. But then at some point, there's a disjoint between what they believe or uh, the genealogy of how the religion was handed down. Now, if the two cannot come to a conclusion on whether or not it's a shared religion altogether. There'll be a difficulty realizing whether they could solve this issue of uh, uh, who is the rightful uh, descendant to have this religion being handed over to them. We have that same issue in in uh, communities here in Africa. Um, there are communities that don't believe that the government, for example, is supposed to be there. And there are others who support the government because of some form of incentive given to them whatsoever. And now we have to go to war with each other over the ideas of different people. And until we realize that these ideas are not organic, they're not coming from us who are out there actually killing ourselves over it. There is no way we can resolve conflicts. Um, we have to understand uh, our shared history. And that's a difficult thing to do too when you're fighting people because then you focus on fighting the people, not on understanding a shared history. I think that we have a need for intermediaries here. Uh, someone who, who holds a neutral ground somehow. It doesn't have to be an external entity, because of course there are people within a, the same community who don't like the fact that this is going on. And if we can give these people a breathing space to figure out how we could solve this, then maybe they can come up with a solution. But if um, we start warring each other and then it becomes a war of ideas too. It's difficult to also identify neutral ground. So we have to we have to leave the people who are not participating in it at the moment to 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 think about it. I, I understand that we have this whole thing going on where we we say that those who do not participate when moral virtue is you know crushed uh, are the worst enemies. But I also think that the bystander is very important in any situation. These are the people who can look at things objectively from both sides and see a middle ground upon which people can actually come together and build something. Um, the government would not solve that. Um, the community head would not solve that. It's just a bystander. We need bystanders in communities. We need bystanders within communities and we need intermediaries to more or less try and resolve these issues. Very powerful, very powerful. And it just reminds me of a quote my history teacher used to always say when I was coming out of class. Um, he'd basically say, the person who stands and does nothing as two parties fight is as worse as the oppressor. Like, he used to always say that at the end of the class. And he says that sometimes we let things escalate by just standing and watching rather than trying to actively go in and get the two parties to listen to each other. So... I really like what you were saying, Milton, there. Um, I don't know, Zoe, do you have any thoughts, additions to this? I I obviously agree with every single thing that Milton has said. You know, um, the importance of 
reconnecting to that shared history, I think is quite crucial in conflict resolution. But personally, um, mainly African conflicts, I have the opinion that economic development really would go a long way in solving a lot of them. Because personally, I think part of why people are so willing to be radicalized and why, as Milton said, they're fighting other people's wars is because we all need a sense of meaning in our lives. You know, the father of three who can't afford to put food on his table might find it easy to be convinced by someone that it's another political party that's responsible for that. And he might carry out that anger with violence because there are no other means for him to readily solve his problems. You know, as humans from babies, we have a psychological tendency to essentially label people as others. We need that group division to function as a society. People, babies decide who they want to carry them, who shouldn't carry them. And I think that carries on into larger society and people decide we're in this society, we're in this group. And yes, we might have a shared history, but I think within that shared history, there will always be divisions. So I think what we need to eventually prevent this in subsequent generations as well, is one, education of what's going on, and two, actual means to meet their everyday needs. If someone is comfortable and they're happy with their standard of living, I don't think you can convince them to fight someone who really hasn't done anything wrong to them. I guess I'd have to agree with you. A lot of African con conflicts are always just based on inequality or a lack there of, of economic development. And I do find your point interesting on like how as babies, we choose who we want to carry us. We choose who our friends are. And I don't know if this, if I'm getting right what you were meaning, but are you saying that naturally as people, we just tend to just divide ourselves? Like, is that how we are as people? Yeah, I personally, I believe that. And I mean, I know this is obviously controversial and not everyone is probably going to believe this, but I personally believe this as human beings to function, and for society to function, for civilization to function, there has to be division. People always have to have groups that they can identify themselves with. And I think it's because people also find a sense of meaning in having, you know, groups and identities. Yes, there is cosmopolitanism. Yes, we're all global citizens of the world. But if everyone is a citizen of the world, no one is. And so people find it stronger to be associated with smaller groups. And unfortunately, in many parts of Africa, this, these smaller groups have taken the form of radicalized, you know, extremist religious groups. Ah, I guess that kind of goes in tune with how fundamentally as people, um, someone once termed this the chosen one syndrome. We all like to feel like we're special. We're not like just some random guy on the street and that we're chosen. And then maybe that kind of feeds into this whole theory about how we try and make our own groups make us continue to feel special maybe that's what stems a lot of conflicts because i'm just thinking of like world war ii from what you're saying zoe exactly because when they join these groups they are told that you know they are serving a greater cause they're essentially fighting this race they're these special people they're these amazing people who are doing these things and it also feeds into their ego you know and so at some point it's just when you actually stop a soldier in this war let's say a soldier in world war ii you know committing gross amounts of war crimes, if you actually stop that soldier in that action and ask him why he's doing what he's doing, if he really breaks it down, 
it's just the sense of purpose, the sense of meaning that like is imbued in that action. He feels like he's doing something special, you know? And so it's that sense of identity, that sense of meaning, like you said, feeling like they're the chosen ones who are destined to do something greater than the average. Nice. Um, I guess just a message to our listeners there. We are all special, but there's nothing that extra special about us, but we should more or less try and enjoy that diversity. Um, and I guess just going into the next phase of our discussion, um, I guess we're just going to talk about how do you cope with all this conflict? Like, I think, Zoe, you kind of started in your intro talking about how you use art to con- to help you cope with it. And that kind of reminds me of Mustafa, who was on uh, Ikasi's second season. And he had a similar experience about how he kind of progressed from Syria to end up in Lebanon as a student and how he was using music as a coping mechanism and as an art form to deal with the Syrian conflict. So I just wanted to find out a little bit more about how you incorporate art in your daily living and how that helps with your mental health and how maybe it can help others. I always say this, but if there was no music, if the concept of music didn't exist, I honestly don't think I would have survived this long because really, especially, you know, studying abroad and being here, I think being able to occasionally just listen to a song that was a hit, for example, in Zambia in 2010, just transports me into that time. And I can see myself as that boy in those streets, you know, going to buy fritters with money that I got from buying my mom tomatoes. I can see that boy again. And when I see those memories and I see those images, I feel like, and I get reconnected with who I was, who I am, you know, as an African studying abroad. And music takes me to places. Music transports me to places. You know, there are studies that show that people who have dementia, for example, they're able to, when listen, when they listen to music from when they were younger, it's almost like it transports them to those memories. And so music therapy is actually a big thing for people with dementia. And I think it's something that also could help a lot of us cope, you know, as the world burns around us sometimes, as it seems like things are falling down. I think music is really powerful in just helping us survive and cope with things, especially music that speaks to you, music that, you know, shows that you're not alone in your struggles. And obviously when I talked about art as well, I didn't just mean the consumption of art, but the creation of it as well. And I I personally believe that everyone has in their capacity, the ability to create and just to express themselves. And this might take a different form with different people. Personally, I recently um, stopped on poetry essentially and used it as a way to express myself. Most times it's just for me, you know, it's not about sending it out there. It's not about getting published. It's not about getting famous. It's about coping. It's about probing the insides of my brain and trying to figure out who I am beneath everything, you know, because sometimes as we've mentioned over and over again, it's been a recurring theme. It's so easy to lose yourself and to lose your perspective and just have this passive resignation when you're abroad and when you're distanced from struggles, you know, we're scholarship students here. This We got these scholarships because we demonstrated a commitment towards change in Africa and a commitment towards transformative leadership. And sometimes it might be easy to just get distanced and divorced from that. And you forget your whole meaning and you forget the purpose that you had ascribed to yourself. And so art sometimes is a way to reconnect with yourself and write and discover who you are when you read between the lines that you yourself have written. I like that quote read between the lines that you yourself have written. 
That's a very powerful quote. Um, guess over to you, Milton. Um, what helps you cope with it? I know you're from Cameroon and you were kind of brought up in this conflict area. How have you managed to kind of um, progress past this and just cope well? While I was in Cameroon and uh, this whole conflict was going on, our, our refuge was usually the farm. Uh, you get to the farm, you, you're working there, you know that nobody's going to bring a gun and shoot you right in there in the farm. So it kind of feels like a safe zone. And I took up farming at the time to keep on doing. Every day I came back from school because I felt like I needed to get my mind off of the situations that were going around so I could effectively focus on my book work when I got around to it. And I'd agree with um, Zoe. Um, music is uh, very transcendental. I mean, there are times that I just play a really old song. It, it doesn't matter what I used to believe at the time uh, when I listened to the song. It might be Christian. It might be Swahili. Just any song. But it reminds me of a time when I was younger and this conflict did not exist. It reminds me of how the world was like at the time, how friendships were conceived, how people went about their businesses with each other, how there was still a lot of mutual trust going around. And then it kind of makes me understand that this is the world that I came from before. So whatever is happening right now is probably just a, a transitional period to something else. It's that something else that we cannot see. But the fact that the world was once better, there is conflict right now. It might get better again. And then maybe then I have to just figure out what my part in it is going to be. That way I can understand that moments of crisis are usually potential moments for great opportunity too. Uh, the, the, the question here is what part we are going to play in it. And it's also very easy, as always said, to lose one's identity and uh, identify with the culture and the environment that you find yourself in once you've left your, your own country. Now, it seems to you that you're disconnected from your own roots. You don't even understand if the situation was explained to you anymore. I mean, there are times that I see pictures of people brutally murdered in Cameroon, and I'm like, oh, okay. Right. But that is not a thing that I would react to in such a manner if I were on the ground seeing these atrocities. And to reconnect with it, we have to find some something that pulls us back. And music is one of those things. Like those old Nigerian music we used to listen to on, on VCD back in the day. And um, uh, writing too. Yes, I used to write quite a lot uh, back in the day. I still keep some of my poetry, like really long stories written in the form of poems. And when I read them, I can remember exactly what situation I was in when I was writing those poems, what kind of feelings I, I felt. It, it brings me back to the place where I know that I actually belong. And then I have to make for myself a commitment to have to go back and try to do something about this. Um, it doesn't have to be. Uh, political, it could be economical, but then it'll make me realize that the part I have to play would be uh, one that has to bring a lot of impact to the population. And that would be solving the root cause of why we even have to have these conflicts among ourselves in the first place. Like Zoe mentioned, we have an economic problem, not necessarily political, right? People are looking for daily bread. Um, I don't know if it was Zoe or it was you, Julian, who said it. We we're looking for daily bread. And when we don't have it, we're also looking for a scapegoat. We want to blame somebody. So I think if we remember the way the world was carefully, and then we can be able to figure out that 
what is going on right now is maybe caused by something. And we'll figure out what that something is. We can have a commitment to solve that problem so that this crisis do not uh, erupt again. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, that's a very powerful point. And I like how you kind of said not everyone has to be in politics or has to be some big soldier to want to deal with these issues. Um, I think that sometimes the idea we get, there are always little ways we can do it. Like, I think you both said poetry is one way, like you can just, or music, like the messages you send through that can be encouraging in of themselves and that can help people move past these. So it's been very insightful just listening to you talk and just give your own opinions on this. Um, I guess as we move to close the discussion, I'm just going to ask each of you, um, the episode's title basically, is conflict inevitable um, based off the things we've said and based off your own personal experience? Um, I guess it's it's not quite a yes or no question, but it's just an interesting question I want to kind of bring this discussion to a close with. So um, Zoe, do you want to kick us off? Uh, I'm going to kick off by first, you know, addressing something that Milton said that I, that quite resonated with me. Um, the fact that if you look back at history, you can usually trace, you know, things haven't always been this way. When did they turn? What can we do to change things? And I think the abandonment of history and the refusal to learn from history is one of the reasons why conflict is unfortunately inevitable. And I think, you know, and I think George Orwell wrote this, I don't know if it's 1984 or in one of his books, but who controls the past controls the future. If you don't understand your history, if you don't understand your past, you don't stand for anything. You, you basically cannot essentially solve problems because things keep repeating themselves. You know, I think it was 20, 2018. Yeah. Allah Salah, um, Sudan's Lady Liberty during a protest. She stood on a car, it made headlines everywhere. And some of the words she said during that protest were, we who quenched the now with our boiling blood shall be silent. And it's a very powerful statement, partly because it taps into history. It taps into her history as a Sudanese woman. And I think the fact that we just repeatedly fail to understand our history, repeatedly fail to solve problems and just keep going in a cycle. I come from a country, for example, where, you know, every election, the same issues are mentioned. Oh, education, I'm going to build roads, I'm going to do this. Great. Is that really what the people need at the moment? No. So you're not solving the problems they have. You're leaving them to solve their own problems. And this inevitably causes conflict. It all comes down to economic development, like I've said. I believe that economic development is one of the best ways to ensure that conflicts in Africa become a thing of the past. And like Milton said, you do not have to be a politician or in the judiciary system to cause this change. In fact, preferably stay away from that because in many African countries, politics has become less about actually causing change and more about making a quick buck at the expense of the country. And so I'll just sum this up by saying, conflict unfortunately is inevitable but that does not necessarily have to be a bad thing. The conflicts do not have to be negative. They do not have to be solved with violence. I believe conflict is a part of the dialectical process that can make a country grow. When conflict arises and a solution is found, the coming together of the conflict and the solution will produce a new state of affairs that is more favorable 
than before when the conflict existed. At least that should be how it works. And that hopefully will be how it works when we find a way to solve many of Africa's issues. That's a very powerful statement from you, Zoe. And I love how you more or less deconstructed what conflict was during your explanation of that. And yes, we don't need to be politicians to have a difference. Um, over to you, Milton. Um, Right. Um, so I really, really like your points. They're very interesting. I'll build, I'll build a little bit on that. So uh, conflicts usually come from competition and comparison. We're trying to be like someone else. We're trying to be like other people. And it pushes individualism too. So instead of the community drive for collective success, everybody now wants to be better than the other person or better than the other group. And this creates interests um, that some people can capitalize on and they develop the tools that we would need to continue um, creating disparities within us. There is people who would evidently take money and give into charity um, and say, okay, we're giving you money so that you can solve some problems, some social problems. But what people actually require is a job. So at the end of the day, there's a few people at the top of the food chain who get all the charity money and the people in actual need have to suffer. And when they keep on piling anger and resentment, of course, it has to it has to emerge somehow, maybe as catharsis or uh, as some form of anger that results in violent conflict, whichever it is. And at the end of the day, conflict also doesn't have to be negative. I mean, we all need to make progress in our lives and in our affairs, but the way we do that does not necessarily mean we have to kill each other for it. What we need is to create a structure upon which people can expressly uh, develop their interests and their desires, you know, with a lot of freedom allowed uh, for them to do that, with resources that are allowed for them to do that. I think if if uh, Cameroonians, for example, had the opportunity to turn the little that they do into businesses that gave them some form of uh, financial viability, nobody would pick up a gun to fight the government. It begins to shape the way we see the country. It changes the entire culture. And people now are satisfied with the life that they have. And even if they're looking for more, now they already have a foundation upon which to build. And this comes as a result of conflict. Yes, we don't have something we're angry. Can you do something about it? And then a structure is put into place where they can do something about this. But if there is anger and resentment and then the government um, decides to bring military personnel into the place to kill people's mothers, yeah, the sons will have to pick up weapons to defend themselves because evidently the sons will be next on the line of uh, death. There's, there's also a lot of business interest in, in conflict. Uh, there are those people who make and sell weapons and some of us only have to buy and use them, right? So maybe we should look at the way in which we, we uh, want to apply certain business concepts in our society. Now, who buys what and who uses what? And maybe it might come in the form of regulations, but you cannot regulate something that doesn't exist. We need a market structure that allows for freedom of expression uh, we need an economic structure that allows people to turn little things they're doing to economically sustainable activities. Uh, and that would give them the opportunity to look at the nation in a different way. They would have the, the perspective that they are contributing to nation building. And no one who is building a house uh, goes about looking at how to tear the other man's down. He's focused on building his, 
right? Now, when people participate in this economic process, the political ideals behind it will not matter to them. It will be a community thing. So everybody is pushing for collective success. Thank you very much. Um, and I like how you kind of broke down the economic processes one way of more or less uh, dealing with this issue. And I guess it's with that that I just have to thank both of you, Zoe and Milton. You guys have certainly changed my perspective, and I hope that you have done that for a lot of our listeners today. And with that, um, I'm just going to draw this discussion to a close, and hopefully um, each of you learned something from me as well as from each other. And with that, I bid everyone a farewell and colossal love. <laughs>